Uh, reading of the scriptures this morning is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. My prayer for you this morning is as we read, the Lord would continue to reveal himself to you through the reading of this word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and wisdom and strength and might and praise and worship and service forever and ever and ever. Lord, the greatest kingdoms of this world have risen up and their leaders were great in a measure, but all of them faded away just like a vapor, just like a blade of grass. But your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And one generation shall commend your works to another forever and ever and ever and ever. All peoples will bow before you and sing the praise of the God who is great and greatly to be praised and whose greatness is quite literally unsearchable. And so we bow before you this day, Lord. I saw a vision, Lord, as we were singing of you being brought up to the throne before all of the angels, before the four living creatures, before the tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation. And there you were crowned by the Father as Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. And all knees bowed to you and all tongues confessed to you that you are the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, how blessed will be that day and how blessed are those who in this day bow their knees willingly and lovingly and confess that you are the Lord. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you would continue to exalt yourself now through the preaching of your word. I pray that you would enlighten our minds and inflame our hearts and humble our wills before you. I pray that you would give this church the vision that it needs. I pray that you would outfit us for the work of the kingdom that you have given to us in this place. Oh, Lord, we love you. You are the Lord of the church. You are the father of these children. You are the husband of the bride. And we love you. We submit ourselves to you. We bow before you. We sing your praise and your praise alone. Please be with me now, Father, as I preach. And all of us now as we listen in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last several weeks, you know, we've been meditating on the Great Commission at this church because we are seeking to reformulate our mission statement to some extent. And the main reason that we have turned to the Great Commission is because as elders... We believe that Jesus Christ has already given the marching orders to the church and that our main duty is simply to submit to Him. He is the Lord of the church. Amen? 
He is the head of the church. He is the Lord of all nations. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And therefore, when He speaks, we must listen. When He commands, we must obey. And so, as elders, we do believe that it's permissible for a church to fashion a mission statement in a way that reflects who God has made them to be and the uniqueness of what that is. But we do believe that every church, including this church, must somehow cling to the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 28:18 through 20 because He's the Lord and He has spoken. And here specifically is what He said. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So based on this text, we spent three weeks there, and we began by meditating on the massiveness of the authority of Jesus and what that means for what He has commanded us to do. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the specific command, and we found that He essentially commanded us to do one thing in three parts. He commanded us to go out from our comfort zone, to go into the nations, to go to where the lost are, and to preach to them the good news of Jesus Christ. Go and disciple the nations, he said. That's the commandment. And that has three parts. First of all, we have to proclaim the gospel. Second, we baptize those who believe. And third, we train them up in the way that they should go. We train them to observe everything that Jesus Christ commanded. We teach them to live the way of life that the Lord God Himself has taught us to live. So the command is to go and disciple the nations, and the parts are preaching, baptizing, and teaching them to obey everything whatsoever He has commanded. Last week, on the basis of all of that, we meditated on the amazing promise that Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, will go with us as we go. As I said last week, He has not commanded us, sort of like a CEO might, a sales force, He hasn't told us to go into the world in such a way that He's going to stay where He's at, and then later when we've finished our job, we'll come back to where He's at. But Jesus Christ, the Lord of all things, has said, I want you to go to the nations, and the good news is that I'm going to go with you wherever you go. Now what that means to me is that as we go, we go with His authority, we go with His power, we go with His resources, we go with His presence. Jesus Christ Himself is with us, and therefore we have the, uh, the power to accomplish His will. Augustine used to pray. He would say, Lord, command me as You will, and empower me to do as You command. And Jesus always answers that prayer, and the way He answers that prayer is by granting us His very presence. And so as we go into the world, He may not give us everything we think we need, but it is a promise from heaven that He will give us everything we actually need to accomplish His will in the world. Oh, what a blessed, blessed promise that is. We do have to go, but we go in the presence of Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the power of Christ. We've looked at the command of Christ on the church. We looked at the promise of the presence of Jesus Christ with the church. And now today, I want to consider one prior promise that I think is just so important to us as we refashion our vision of what this church is about that Jesus made in Matthew 16, and which Greg just read for us. But let's uh, go ahead and read that text again. Starting in verse 13, the Lord said, or or, uh, Matthew wrote, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? They're talking about Me. They're saying lots of things about Me. So what are you hearing? What's the press? 
Who do people think I am? Well, some think you're John the Baptist. Others think you're Elijah. Others think that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Maybe come back from the dead. But he said to them, he said, but who do you, my disciples, who do you say that I am? You've been walking with me. You've been talking with me, listening to me, learning from me. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I want to focus in on verses 17 and 18 here for a few minutes. Historically, there have been two major ways that these words have been interpreted, and specifically when Jesus said that on this rock I will build my church. So I want to talk about that for just a little bit. The first way that people have interpreted this text is to say that Peter himself is the rock upon which Jesus Christ was going to build his church. And I must admit that this does make some sense. After all, the, the, the name Peter means rock. And so Jesus is playing off the name Peter and saying, I name you the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And so just reading it full speed, it could sound like Jesus means he's going to build his church on the back of Peter. And then when you look at church history, you do see that Peter became a major leader in the life of the church. First of all, after the resurrection of the Lord, you remember that in the end of the Gospel of John, the Lord took Peter aside, specifically and, and only Peter, as far as we know. And He said to him three times the question, He said, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter a- answered him and said, Yes, Lord, of, of course I love you. You know that I love you. In fact, the third time, I think the text says that Peter was troubled in his spirit and said, Lord, why are, why are you asking me so much? You know that I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. And every time Jesus answered in return the same thing, he said, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now, I think that the Lord in part repeated this to Peter three times because Peter had denied him three times, right? And I think the Lord was trying to affirm Peter for every single denial that he made and said, Peter, I forgive you. I put my mercy upon you. I have not given up on you. You remember earlier the Lord said, Satan had requested to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And now the Lord is pouring His mercy upon Peter and saying, I love you. I embrace you. You're mine. And the second thing He's telling him by by saying this three times, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He's saying to Peter, I want you to rise up and lead the church. I want you to be a pastor of the church, an elder of the church. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he identifies himself that way. He was an apostle, but in 1 Peter 5, he says, I am a pastor of the church. I'm an elder. I'm a shepherd of the flock. That's how Peter saw himself. Jesus Christ called him to lead the sheep. When we get into the book of Acts and, you, and we see, you remember that scene where the disciples decided to try to replace Judas. And it was Peter who stood up and led that whole movement. It was Peter who got them to think through who the proper replacements might be. It was Peter who led the, the train that eventually led to the picking of Matthias to, to replace Judas. Now I think that the disciples got a little bit ahead of the Lord there. 
I think that Paul was actually the Lord's replacement for Judas. But the point that I'm trying to make is here we see Peter rising up and being the key leader in the life of the church. And even after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down upon the people and filled them with power to preach the gospel boldly, it was Peter who stood up and preached a long sermon that was so persuasive that thousands of people came to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. But it was Peter. And Peter was really the lead person in the life of the church in the book of Acts until Paul comes on the scene. And when Paul comes on the scene, the book of Acts sort of shifts over to the life and ministry of Paul. But in the life of the church, we must understand Peter remained a key leader in the life of the church. We don't really know all the details of what happened to him, but we know that he was one of three, if not the singular, key leader in the life of the church in Jerusalem, which was the center of the church in those days. So all I'm saying is that there, there are reasons why people think Jesus said He's building His church on the rock of Peter Himself. I don't think they're right. And I think there are other reasons. The Catholic Church wants Peter to be the rock upon which Jesus built the church because that makes him the first pope in their mind. And then every other pope from there is descended from Peter and has the spiritual authority of Peter. So they have political and financial reasons for arguing that. But there are others who, who aren't so caught up in the politics and just really think that that's what Jesus was saying in this text. I don't want to go into the details of this, the Greek grammar here. Maybe I will in the second hour. But just grammatically speaking, I don't think it's possible that that's what Jesus was saying. He uses the word rock twice, that's true, but he uses different versions of the word which don't match together. And in Greek, things have to match together in order to go together, and they don't match. And so I don't think that Jesus is saying, Peter, I am going to build my church on your back. I don't think he's saying that. Historically speaking, then, the other alternative to this interpretation is to say that Jesus was pointing to the confession that Peter made of him. That he wasn't saying he was going to build the church on Peter himself, but he was going to build the church on the confession that came out of Peter's mouth. And I think that this is more accurate. I think that Jesus was looking to the work that God did inside of Peter's heart when Peter confessed that he was the Son of God, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus said, that's the rock upon which I am going to build my church. I will not build it on political power as so many other kingdoms are built. I will not build it on political coercion or religious manipulation. I will not do that. Rather, I will build my kingdom on the rock of confession that comes out of people's mouth about the reality of who I am. And so I do think that Jesus meant that, but I want to put a little bit of a twist on it. Because Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, not in and of himself, but he confessed that Jesus was the Christ because God the Father had revealed this to him, right? You see that? God the Father had done a work in Peter's heart, and that work is what caused Peter to see who Jesus was and to confess it with his mouth. Without the work of God in the heart of Peter, there would have been no confession. Without the work of God in any of our lives, there would be no confession. So I don't think Jesus is exactly saying He's going to build His church on the confessions of His people. I think He's saying He's going to build His church on the work of God in the hearts of His people that causes confession. The purposes of God in the world are a rock. 
And you can build anything on top of that rock so long as it accords with the will and the purposes of God. When God determines to do something, it will come to pass. When God says, I will build a kingdom through Jesus Christ, it will come to pass. And the way that He does that is He awakens, alivens the heart to see who Jesus is and to confess who He is. That's the rock upon which the church is built. I think of two texts here. There are others, but I just want to point you to two. The first is John 16, or 6, 44, where Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now that word draws literally means compels. It means almost to make somebody do something. It means to, to draw in such a way that I'm going to draw you and you are going to obey me. You know, I'm going to draw you to me and you will come. I'm going to compel you. So you must hear what Jesus is saying. No one comes to believe in me, the Lord Jesus Christ, unless the Father, God Almighty, compels him to do so. No one sees who I am unless the Father opens his eyes. No one feels the wonder of my glory unless the Father gives him or her a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of me. No one believes unless the Father compels that person to believe. And that's true of all of us. It was true of Peter. It's true of me. It's true of everyone who's ever believed in Jesus Christ throughout all of history. The Father is the ultimate cause of our belief. Second text that comes to mind is Acts 13, verse 48. Acts 13, 48. Earlier in this chapter, the church was praying and fasting together, and while they were praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit made it clear to the church that Paul and Barnabas were to be set aside and sent to the nations to preach the gospel. So I think this is such an, an amazing moment in the life of the church. If I could be at any prayer meeting, I would have loved to have been there when somehow the Holy Spirit made it clear what His will was and the church gathered around Paul and Barnabas, laid their hands on them and sent them out into the world for the task that the Holy Spirit had just called them to. Not very long after that, they came to a city called Antioch in Pisidia and there they preached the gospel to the Jews. They preached the gospel to the Gentiles over time. And what they said to the Gentiles was, listen, this gospel is not only for the Jews, but this good news is for the Gentiles also. And here's what Luke wrote in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, that the gospel was for them as well, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I hope you hear that. You're talking about an entire city. In fact, earlier in the chapter, Luke notes that the whole city had come out to hear Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine all of Elk River showing up to hear the gospel preached? That's what happened in this situation. And as was normally the case, when they preached, some of the people were moved and some of them wanted to kill Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to persecute Paul and Barnabas. So Luke's absolute assurance is this, the ones who the Father had already appointed to believe, believed. The reason people believed in Antioch of Pisidia was not because of the force of Paul's personality. In fact, later he said when he speaks, he was fumbling all over his words. He was not very articulate. He did not come with the wisdom of men. He was not very impressive at all. It was not the slickness of the presentation. 
It was the action of God, the activity of God in the lives and hearts of people that caused them to believe in Jesus Christ when they heard the good news about Him. God had chosen them before the foundation of the world that they should believe, and as soon as they heard the gospel, they did believe. And so, beloved, the mighty rock upon which Jesus Christ is building His church is not Peter, it's not the confessions that we make, it is the work of God in the hearts of His people that lead to those confessions. The work of God is a rock and nothing else is like it. Personal charisma fades away just like a vapor. It is not a rock. You can build an organization quickly. You can build it big on charisma, but it will fade away because it's not a rock. Peter was just a blade of grass, just like all of us. A powerful leader, an important man of God in the life of a church, of the church, but just a blade of grass and not a rock. Confessions in themselves can be iffy. One person can say, I believe in Jesus today. I don't believe in Him tomorrow. And so confessions in and of themselves are not a rock. The only thing that is a rock is the work of God in the life of a person that cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has determined to save me to the degree that I become like Jesus, who will stop Him from doing it? Nothing and no one will stop Him. That is the rock, beloved, upon which Jesus Christ is building the church. And so, as we, glory of Christ, as we go out in obedience to Jesus' command, we don't have to worry about whether or not we'll succeed. We don't have to worry about whether or not some people will believe as we preach. Of course, some people will believe. How can I be so confident about that? Because I read the Bible. And the Bible says that God has already called some to be His own. They are His elect right now in this city, although they're not walking by faith in Him right now. But as we go out there and preach the Gospel, and God will have sent us to preach, when they hear the Gospel, it will quicken life in them and they will believe and nothing will stop God from saving them to the nth degree. The ultimate success of the church of Jesus Christ is not in question because it's resting upon the shoulders of God. It's not resting upon our shoulders. And so with that, Jesus said something that's incredibly important for our life together here as a church and the, and the life of the church around the world. Namely, that on this rock of the work of the Spirit of God, He would build His church. Amen to that. I have three things I want to point out. First of all, when it comes to actually building the church, I'm talking about the practical, everyday, in and out stuff. Jesus Christ is the one who's doing it. Jesus Christ is the one who called a small group of people together in Rogers some years ago to have a Bible study and put it on their hearts to have a church. Jesus Christ is the one who developed me as a church planter in California and then moved me out here to be a part of Bethlehem Baptist and get involved in the church planting ministry and eventually get connected with the small group here. Jesus did that. Jesus is the one who stopped me almost on the freeway because He put His Spirit on me so strongly in saying to me, you're to be the pastor of this church. Jesus is the one who called Pastor Kevin and who's called many of you to come now and to be part of His work in this place. Jesus is building His church. I could explain to you like how it happened in history, but it doesn't tell the real story. The real story is that Jesus is building His church and He will always build His church. 
the ultimate success of this place is not about us. It's about Him because He said, I will build my church. Of course He uses us. It's an amazing, astonishing act of mercy, but He uses us. He uses us to work and to preach and to teach and to love and to heal and to serve and to go. All these things. But let's make no mistake about it. He is doing the work. As I said last week, there are some things the Lord has not outsourced. And one thing He has not outsourced is the building of His church. And because He's building this house, this house will last forever and ever and ever and ever. Oh God, I pray that You let that sink into us. This church will last forever. The kingdoms of the world rise and fall. Great leaders of the world come and go. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the church, lasts forever. Why? Because He is building the house. Second thing, because He's building the house, the church belongs to Him and He takes this very personally. He said, I will build my church. My church. There's so much to be said about this, but I just want to kind of cut to the heart of the matter and say this. Jesus Christ feels very deeply for us. He doesn't think about us like a corporate giant who's building an organization. He doesn't think about us like some kind of political leader or, or sports team leader or somebody who's just building something for his own glory. He thinks about us like a bride. He has passion for us. He loves us beyond what we could understand. He has feelings for us beyond what we can comprehend. He feels for His people. Really feels for us. The Lord brought this home to me one day some years ago. I've told you the story before, but I just feel compelled to tell you again. I was sitting with Kim in our living room in California, and we were just sitting in a chair together, and I was just holding her. We were just being with each other, enjoying each other's presence. And as I sat there holding my bride, I was just overwhelmed with love for her. It was so real and so strong and so deep, and it brought tears to my eyes. And I was surprised by it, and so I asked the Lord, Lord, what is this about? What is this about? And just at the height of the strength of my feelings, I sensed the Lord whispering to me and saying, Charlie, this is how I feel for the church. It's how I feel for her. She's my bride. I love her. I have deep, strong, intimate feelings for my bride. Beloved, that experience impacted me so deeply because I had spent years thinking about how Jesus and why Jesus built His church and all the ins and outs of what He's up to. And I, I spent my life trying to glory in the things that He was doing, but I had never felt the way He feels for His bride. I never understood that this God who is so great and so mighty and so wise and so capable and so eternal is also a lover. He has passion. Real, deep, holy passion. And that's how He feels for His church. We are His bride. I will build My church. And I will call her My bride. At the end of Revelation, it says that we are the wife of Jesus. I don't know why, but that strikes me as so much more intimate. Bride seems like a formal word to me. The word wife seems so intimate and so loving, so close. We are the wife of Jesus Christ. And he said this, I will build my church and I will call her my bride. 
Thirdly, because of who Jesus Christ is, the power, the reality of who He is, because of the depth of His feelings and the intent of His purposes, as He begins to build His church, nothing will be able to stop Him, not even the gates of hell. There's not a single opponent of the true church of Jesus Christ that can ultimately stop what Jesus is doing in us and through us. Asa, I think it was you yesterday that pointed out in our class, we had a class yesterday on the intertestamental period, the history between the testaments. And I believe it was Asa who said the very thing that people think will squash out the movement of God is the very thing that causes the movement of God to spread like wildfire throughout the earth. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Governments of the world think, I know what we'll do, we'll kill all the Christians. They think that will stamp the church out, but it has just the opposite effect. Every time they persecute us, the church flourishes. Look at China. There was great, great persecution that broke out there in the 1950s. All of the missionaries were expelled from the country, and they were greatly concerned about the life of the church. Some decades later, I don't know the exact year, when we were let back into China, to our surprise, we found out that that church grew by thousands, and then tens of thousands, and then millions. Do you know that today there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States of America? That's amazing. That is amazing. That is proof that Jesus Christ will build His church, and not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against us. Now, gates are defensive weapons, right? Gates are not offensive things. You don't beat somebody up with a gate, right? Gates are intended to keep prisoners in and keep enemies out. So the picture in Jesus' head is not that He's building His kingdom and then Satan is attacking His kingdom. That is not the picture. The picture is that the kingdom of God has come into the kingdoms of this earth and we are the ones on the offensive. We are the ones attacking the gates of hell. Their gates will not be able to stop us. They will not. We may have to lay siege for a while through fasting and prayer. We may have to pull down strongholds by the might of Christ, by losing sleep for the sake of intercession. We may have to work with all the might that God so powerfully works within us, but in the end, the gates will not stand. They will come down. We will bring captives out of the kingdom of darkness and see them come into the kingdom of light. This will happen. In fact, it's happening all over the world right this moment. I mean, today, have you ever stopped to think about the tidal wave of worship that goes around the whole globe on a Sunday? We're at the end of the tidal wave, but this huge, huge tidal wave of people have been worshiping and preaching the gospel all day long. And I promise you, thousands have come out of the kingdom of darkness this very day and into the kingdom of light. Hell, Satan, all his forces will not be able to stop Jesus Christ. Period and end of story. In Matthew, we see that Christ will build His own church, that He takes it personally, that He feels for us as a bride, that He builds His church on the rock of the work of God in people's hearts, and that nothing, nothing, nothing will be able to stop Him. And so, I say again, when we go out into the world and obey Jesus Christ, to go and make disciples of all nations, we have not to worry whether or not it will work. It's not about us. It's not about our programs. It's not about our abilities. It's not about our personalities. It's not about our ability to articulate and get things done. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ is building His church and nothing will stop Him. I want to take one more insight from these verses. 
And then in the next couple of weeks, I do want to talk about the practical matters that all of this implies. I'm looking at verse 19 now, and Jesus said this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What an astonishing sentence. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's so much to be said here. So much that we could meditate upon. But I want to hone in on this thing. That although Jesus Christ is building His church, He has invited us into the work. He has given us, to some extent, the authority of heaven. He has handed the keys of heaven over to the church, to some extent. We have to be careful about what that means. The Catholics have greatly abused that. But in seeking not to abuse it, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The bottom line is, Jesus Christ has said, come and go to work with me. I'm your father. I'm the husband of the bride. Let's go to work together. Let's do this thing together. As I said last week, it's like a father inviting his child to come and build a kingdom with him. The child's not really doing the work, but the child gets the privilege of going to work. And in this way, Jesus Christ has invited us into His work. And the emphasis here is not on how valuable we are or on how great we are or what kind of power we have. The emphasis here is on the worship-evoking mercy of Jesus Christ that was used people like us to build His kingdom. We use weak things to shame the strong and foolish things to shame the wise. Jesus is amazing. He is high and lifted up. He's mighty beyond anything we've ever comprehended. And yet He dwells with the lowly. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And He uses people like us, just everyday people like us, to build a kingdom that will never, ever, ever go away. Now on a practical level, what this means for glory of Christ is that to an extent, Jesus Christ has handed the keys to the kingdom over to us in Elk River and beyond. Everywhere we go, we go with the keys of the kingdom of heaven with us, namely in the, per- in the person of Jesus Christ. This means that whatever He's called to do, us to do, as we do it, even Satan himself will not be able to stop it. Not because we're so strong, but because Jesus is so strong and He's granted us His authority. Now obviously, we're not the only church in this area that's been granted the keys of the kingdom. When Jesus grants the keys to His church, He means the church with a big C. He's granted us a part in a much, much bigger picture. And so we have to remain humble here at Glory of Christ and we have to meditate and pray and call upon the Lord and say, Father, what is the particular part that You have for us to play here? Your church as a whole is invading the kingdom of darkness and we will succeed. What is the particular part You've given us to play? What's the hill You want us to take? What is the gate that You want us to storm? Who are the people with whom You want us to share? And so I've been asking the Lord this question a lot lately, and I don't have a full answer. I'm not a prophet. I don't necessarily, I don't think, have the gift of prophecy. As I've looked in and prayed into the future, I don't get a lot of specific details, but the Lord did give me a glimpse into a, a vision of what this church will likely become in the future, what He's trying to do in this church. And so let me just take a couple of minutes and paint for you a picture of what I see The next couple of weeks, I want to come back and talk about the details of what it might take to make that happen. When I look into the future of glory of Christ, prayerfully, when I get out into the woods with my Bible and I'm praying and I'm asking Jesus to help me see, I close my eyes and I think about this church, I think about the people I love so much and what will become of us, the first 
thing that I see, the primary thing that I see, is a people who are living in awe of God. I see a people who have been given the privilege of catching a glimpse of the mightiness and the glory of God and who are honestly in awe of Him. It's not a put-on, it's just the facts. We're blown away by Him. We're in awe of Him. We're smitten by Him. We're taken by Him. We're interested in Him. We're attracted to Him. We're seeking Him. I don't have an idealistic vision of a bunch of people who don't sin or don't have problems, don't have warts, don't have wounds, who are perfectly in awe of God. That's not the vision that I see. What I see is a bunch of wounded warriors who are learning to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, and more and more coming to live in awe of Him, truly to live in awe of Him, as they raise their children in awe of God, as they go to work in awe of God, as they serve the church in awe of God, as they go into the world in awe of God. The awe of God, the worship of God, characterizes our hearts. That's what I see. Yesterday, in that class on the intertestamental period, I think the main thing that came out of it for me is when we were done, I just wanted to plant myself on my face and worship the Almighty who was controlling the greatest kingdoms in the history of the world to spread His gospel around the world. Alexander the Great thought he knew what he was doing. He had no clue that God was using him to spread one language everywhere so that the gospel could be preached in a language everybody could understand. The Roman government was so strong and so powerful and they built roads everywhere so that they could control the world. And they didn't understand that God made them do that so that the gospel could spread like that all over the world. God is an amazing God. He's an amazing God. And I think the more that we see that, the more we'll be in awe. Warts, yes. Wounds, yes. Failures, yes. Awe, yes. Yes. I see a people enthralled with the glory of God. As we grow in our sense of awe, the next thing I see, and I'm just talking about, beloved, closing my eyes and praying about this. I just can see and feel and almost hear the worship of the Lord emanating from His people. People who come to be really in awe of God sing His praise. Songs like we were singing earlier, oh, that song, Be Unto Your Name, just moves my heart so much every time. I found myself over there just weeping with tears, loving the Lord my God, and I see a vision of a church, no matter how big we get, that just authentically worships the Father in settings like this, in small groups, wherever we are. We're just an authentic people of worship because we're authentic lovers of God. I see a church that continues to be rooted in the Word of God, I think it's important that we not become arrogant about this. You know, Paul said that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's important that we not make an idol of theology and think that we're better than other people because we think clearer than other people. We can't go that direction. But I do pray that we would be a people passionate for the truth because understanding the truth about God is the path to having true affection for God, passion for God, love for God over time. I see us being a people who train many up and send them out to be good homeschool moms and good nonprofit leaders and good blue-collar workers and white-collar workers. I see us training up church planters. I see us training up missionaries. In other words, I see us bringing people in, introducing them to the massive, amazing, awesome God, training them to serve this God, and then sending them out with all the support we can muster. Bring them in, train them up, send them out. That's what I see. 
All to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. As I said, I'm not a prophet. I don't have a spirit of prophecy. I don't think that I do. But I do believe, especially last night as I was praying in my basement, that God opened my eyes to allow me to see. And I feel in awe of what God is going to do in the life of this church. Not because we're something, but because He's something, and even the gates of hell will not be able to stop Him from accomplishing His purposes. And so in the next couple of weeks, I do want to talk about the practical stuff that has to happen to bring a vision like that about. I do want to invite you into conversation with the elders about what we practically ought to be doing. And the first thing I think we ought to be doing, I want to call you to now, and that's simply to pray. Simply to pray. If Jesus is the one building this church, then that says to me that the main work of the church is to call upon His name. And I want to ask you in this next week to set time aside and just pray. In the next hour we will discuss a little bit, but mainly I just want to huddle with you and pray and call upon the name of the Lord because if He is to bring these things about, then He has to bring these things about. And we'll have to call on His name. So let me pray now. Our God and Father, we rest ourselves in You. We thank You for the work that You've done in each of our hearts. Father, many of us in this room believe in You. And the reason we believe in You is because You've caused that to happen. And so we thank You. We rest in You. Father, for anybody in this room who does not believe in You, I pray that You would open their eyes right now to see the glory and the wonder of who Jesus Christ is. That although we had all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Although we had all greatly offended God and broken fellowship with Him, that Jesus Christ came to this earth and took on flesh and lived a righteous life and died a real death on the cross so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And in order to seal the deal, Lord Jesus, You were raised again from the dead on the third day to prove that You are indeed the Lord of all things. So I pray that You would cause any to believe who do not believe now And I pray that you'd cause the rest of us to rest in you and rest in you deeply. Lord Jesus, you will build your church. Nothing will stop you. And you will use us to do it. And I thank you so much, Lord. I thank you with all of my heart. I pray that you would be pleased now to receive our authentic praise. In Jesus' great name, amen.